Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Come in and welcome. First timer? Yes, this is Tales to Terrify. I'm Lawrence Santoro, and don't believe all you've heard of me. Old chums, yes, the nook is brighter than normal tonight. The tree in there, yes, that tree, bleeds light into the place. We can turn it down later if it suppresses your chills, uh, makes you feel too jolly. No? Well, you're the guest. It's up to you. First, grab a hot cider, cocoa, tea, some such warm beverage that will promote snuggles tonight. Yes, there will be cold listening. Two short tales tonight, about which I will tell you in a moment. First, I want to remind you about the book. I know you're tired of hearing about it, but there we have it. We are perilous close to the time when, if you order it, you won't get it in time for the holidays. So buy the book now, as Mahler the Ink Black Cat of the Nook might say. Tales to Terrify, Volume 1. Just click on the button on the site. On the button on any site in the District of Wonders, here, the Starship Sofa, Protecting Project Pulp, Crime City Central, buy the book. 
next. Remember January 26th? Remember that upcoming date. It will feature Class 2 in the Starship Sofa's How to Write Science Fiction series, uh, this time with visiting Professor Spider Robinson. Spider's got a great name, and he's an old friend of the Starship. You know him from Callahan's Cross-Time Saloon, from Stardance, and his recent novel, Very Hard Choices. Now, if we survive the Mayan apocalypse, class will meet on Saturday, January 26th at 8 p.m. GMT, Greenwich Mean Time. Stop by any of the neighborhoods in the district of you-know-what, because the information is plastered on any wall and any lamppost in the hood. You can enroll just by clicking the appropriate button and filling in the information. Then on January 26th, keep open whatever time 8 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time is for you, and enjoy. Okay? Okay. Another bit of business. Before we dive into the stories of the night... Liking us on Facebook is not mandatory, but it is a, well, it's a friendly gesture and will perhaps enhance your enjoyment of these dark time weekly meetings. I'd love more give and take in the forum on the Tales website at talestoterrify.com, but Facebook friendship, it's almost as good. Our co-editor and sometimes narrator, Cher Eves, did have a Christmas wish for us to top 500 listeners liking us before the holiday, but, well, we topped that last week, so stop by the Tales to Terrify page, like us, stop by iTunes and give us a good review, stop by the forum and engage with your fellow nook-nicks, and become part of this little community here. You can have an influence on what goes on here in the nook every week. Yes, you truly can. So, is that enough said? I think it is. It is Christmas. It's Hanukkah. It's Kwanzaa. It's the holiday season. It's time for family, for gathering, for being close, for remembering. Let's begin some memories with some fiction tonight. Let's begin with a little artificial autobiographical tale. I wrote this years and years ago now. It was written for an anthology called Winter Tales. The story was well-received in that book of seasonal horrors and chills, and since that time I've posted it almost yearly on my blog. I'll read it for you now, and after, I'll give you a few words about it. By the way, the time in the story is late 1944, and the war referenced is World War II. Here is a word from the world. The snow had started the day before. The sun was bright in a clear sky, and it snowed. Each flake caught the sun. Sparkles swam in the air and streaked along the wind, People passing on Cottage Street kept looking up to the clear sky to let the cold colors hit them in the eye or in the glasses, and they smiled, smiled admiring their shadows as they walked, and the sunny, sunny snowstorm falling around them. It was a real curiosity, Pop-Pop called it. Soon, though, the sky became gray and the snow continued into the dark. This was more like it. 
all the things that blew and rolled down the streets, all the things that stood at the corners, that squatted in the back alley or at the bottom of the yard, were first stopped, pinned to the ground by the falling snow, then covered into lumps. It snowed all through supper and after. It snowed through the radio and Pop-Pop's reading. It snowed even harder when I went to bed. And all night I'd wake up to go to the window to wish for more. I pressed my face against the cold glass to peer at the sky above the eaves. I wanted there to be more snow in the sky. And there was. The sky was black, but the air was lit by the street light at the end of the alley. Pieces of white day fell through the night and brushed little whiskers against the glass. I thought the wet chill would crack my cheek when I smiled. In the morning, the world was new. Yesterday's lumps were smooth and the spaces between them were even and white. In the yard, the snow had rolled in on waves of wind from over the far fence and dropped quietly and deeply. It filled the space from the back of the house all the way to the alley, then buried the fence and the alley. Then it buried the Irby's fence across the way, then buried their yard too. Then everything, everything was all the same. When the wind blew hard enough to make the electric pole by the corner sway and the wires clack and shatter their icy silver loads that had been building all through the storm, Pop-Pop looked up and down the alley. He shook his head. We'd better stay in, he said. All of us. Falling wires, he said. Careful, he said. Electrocution, he said. Nana looked into the pantry and shook her head. The food'll never last, she said. When the wind howled, the snow rose alive, spinning, and the world went white. So big a thing as Mount Amos totally disappeared. So, too, did Aunt and Uncle Irby's house across the alley. Our yard began now at the back door and went on forever. Around other houses and on forever. The world was just our place, just our house, and the sweetly shaped mounds of snow stretching into the forever. A few black lines crossed above or rose from it, a pole down the way, the very tips of the back fence, dead black morning glory vines still hanging in tatters from the summer. Then there was nothing, nothing, the end of our world, our place only. I said once that by the time the telegram came, I already knew. Here's what happened. It was in that snow. Mother and I were on the front porch, a trolley passed the house and rumbled slowly, slipping, wheels spinning uphill toward the end of town. A man came up the sidewalk. Through the snow I heard him whistling, rum and coca-cola. I laughed. The snow was blowing in front, behind, around him. It was climbing his legs and wrapping his face. It looked as if he could see right through him, as though pieces of him were being carved away by the wind. He looked alive, inside with snow. I laughed some more. He heard me laugh and looked up. He saw me on the porch with Mother. He looked at the door behind me, and then at the envelope in his hand. I laughed, and he had seen us. Mother was tucking me, buttoning my face into the wool snowsuit, already wet from the blowing snow. I laughed, and she turned to see. She saw the man coming and stopped. Her fingers stopped on the button at my mouth. 
I could smell cold, wet wool and my mother's warm skin, cold cream smooth and fragrant from the morning dishes. The street was empty. The hill was white all the way to where it disappeared. Black sticks stuck out here, there, trees, a fence, phone poles. The trolley tracks were black lines along the way. Then they glazed over white, then they vanished. The wind howled. And for a minute the street faded into white, then it vanished too. And the man disappeared with the rest of the world. The world was our porch and mother frozen at my mouth, and I thought, good, he's gone. Daddy, daddy'll be all right. Then the wind dropped its voice, and the man stepped onto our porch and shook his hat like a dog. There was nothing to do at all. He wiped his glasses with his finger like a windshield wiper. They fogged up again, and he took them off, and he squinted at the paper in his hand. Uh, Mrs. Ernesto de Angel... Mother nodded. D'Angelo, yes. Ernest, it's just Ernie. His name is... Yes, it's Ernesto, but he's just Ernie. He brushed the snow off the envelope gently. He was so gentle. She reached out for it, took it, held it, turned it over in her hands. Then he said, Sign here, and gave her a book and a pen. The pen wouldn't write. Sorry, she said. He took back the pen and blew on it, then rolled it between his two hands and shook it. A big splat of blue plopped onto the snow on the porch. Sorry, he said. She said, that's all right, and wrote in the man's book. She put the cap back on the pen and handed it to him, said, I'll have to get you some money. And he said, oh, that's okay, Mrs. Uh, Ma'am, that's okay, I, I don't need any. I don't usually get... And then he was gone, gone toward town. Another blast of wind rolled the snow, but I could still see him. In a second, the trolley loomed down the hill. It slid on the rails, sparks showered into the snow from the line above. It stopped, and then silent for a moment. Silent, it was the only thing we could see in the world. And the man, the trolley and the man, the man got into the trolley. The bell clanged and sounded very close in the woolly snow, and the silence... The sweep of the wind went with it. Somehow the trolley growled its sandy wheels against the tracks and disappeared toward town. Mother held the envelope. I had been forgotten. The, the woolly button in my mouth was still loose, and the envelope was very small in her hand. I knew it meant that Daddy wouldn't be home, that he was going to stay at the Pacific Theater uh, until the next show or, or the next one, can you imagine that? That he'd stay away for a long, long time, and that I'd be an orphan now. I, I didn't want people to look at me right then. I didn't want them to talk to me. All I knew was that the backyard was filled with snow taller than me. I followed Mother into the house. I was a ghost, invisible. I could make noise, but not lift things, not change things. I could only be what had already been. No one spoke. My mother stood in the living room and looked at the envelope. It dripped. Nana came down from upstairs and stopped on the steps to look. Pop-Pop came in from the kitchen. He looked. I continued on through the house. No one noticed. To the kitchen. There were voices distant behind me now. I went out back 
I was ready for the snow, for the day. The whole expanse of the yard was at my feet. The snow drifted in curving hills to the second floor of Uncle Irby's place. Maggie, the dog, looked out an upper window at me. Her tongue and the glass made clear places in the breath haze that bloomed around her nose and muzzle. And the snow started at my feet. I could tunnel through the world, I thought. A tunnel could go anywhere, everywhere. It would be very cold under the snow, but maybe not too dark. Snow was white, after all. I dragged open the door to the back porch toilet. The Kaibo, Pop-Pop called it. It was now just a storage place for garden things, junk, old spiders and dust, things forgotten. My summer shovel and pail. That was too small to dig a tunnel through the world, and I tossed them aside. Then I found Nana's garden spade. It was too long, too heavy. Pop-Pop's cinder shovel was just my size. He used it to fill gunny sacks with furnace ashes. These he kept in the trunk of the LaSalle for winter weight for traction, The shovel was short. It was light. It had a pointed blade. I could dig anywhere with this. Good tool is the first part of a good job. Daddy'd said that. I scooped as I waded down the steps. I tossed, packed, shoved, and soon was at the bottom of the porch stairs. And the snow rose over my head. I was surrounded by whiteness and was dripping hot already. Sweat tickled down my back and became cold on my skin. I pushed my mittens into the snow in front, and it gave way. I leaned into it and fell slowly, gently, carried to the ground. I scooped shovelfuls behind me, and soon I was on my knees, burrowing like a groundhog, on my way. I shoved the cold, packed whiteness aside, pressing it hard against the walls of my tunnel, forcing my way into the heart of winter. It was bright day and I realized soon how large the world was. I had no idea before. I scooped and scraped, patted and pressed the sides of the tunnel, the roof, smoothed it all, made it nice, kept going, and the sun was far away on the other side of the snow roof, out there, outside. There was a faint light that seeped from where I had begun at the porch down to where I dug now, It darkened as I scooped. I I wished I had brought Daddy's nightcrawler lantern. I could see it under the bench in the basement, see it in my mind's eye, see it in the cardboard box, a rag covering most of it. I could see its little clear dome and shiny handle, its flat metal base. I could feel its weight carrying it in the darkening snow tunnel. I could almost see the rings of light it would make on the tree leaves overhead. I could almost hear Daddy talking about the fishing we'd have with this beauty that he dangled in front of my nose before dropping the worm wriggling into the pail, laughing. Mosquitoes and other sweaty summer bugs sang in my ears, climbed in the light against the leaves. The fat worm wriggled into the dirt in the pail and was gone. The lamp was back there. It was a world away, in the basement, under the place where the people talked. My breath was just dull gray now, and it wasn't silver bright anymore. I wondered how far I'd come. I was nowhere near the other side of the world. I knew that. I didn't think I was even at the end of the yard. I tucked my knees to my chin, and I scooted round to lean against the tunnel wall. I breathed. The Irby house was ahead. I'd have to get around it. That was first. 
Then I'd have to get around their garage. Then through Pans Park. Then up the mountain. After the mountain was the other side. Down to Carsonia. A long way from there then was Philly. After that, I wasn't sure. I, I knew that the Pacific Theater started somewhere after Philly, Philadelphia. Daddy had gone first to Philly. Then he went somewhere else. And then he had gone to the Pacific Theater. If I could only remember what Daddy had said about everything, I, I could find him. If I could remember, I knew that. If I could remember everything that Daddy had said. Everything was important now. Everything was clues. I had to remember not to get confused with other things, things I made up, things other people told me. I, if I could remember it all, I could get to him, and we could watch Gone with the Wind together at the Pacific Theater, then come home, maybe get some ice cream first at Rexall, some hot chocolate, then we'd come home. I was really mad. I Just like Daddy got sometimes at me, I was really, really mad. And when I punched the sides of the tunnel, the wall gave way a little. I punched it again. Then I scooped. I widened the scoop. I scraped above. I dug below. And soon there was a side passage going a different way. It pointed now toward 18th Street. I knew that. The world was so large. I could avoid the Irby house, go around it, then up, up, up the mountain, and I started deepening this new route. It was very, very dark in a very short time. It was black. I had to get back to where I had branched off, maybe go the other way. I dug for another few minutes until it got too dark in that way, and then I returned to the main shaft. A curve. Maybe the light would follow a gentle bend. It seemed right, and I started to angle left, making the main route to the world into a long, gentle arc. Soon it was dark again, and I, I just wanted to stretch out and rest. I was going to need light. I scooped out a little room in the snow, enough space for me to just stretch out. I lay flat on my back, looked up. If I closed my eyes and pressed against them with my mittens, it was a different dark than if I kept them open. I liked that. It was so quiet out here in the world. The snow was just a few inches above my face. I reached up and I smoothed it, smoothed it flat, smoothed it hard like a well-packed snowball. It was warmer in there than it was on the outside, where the wind blew and the cold tried to suck the air out of my chest. There was no wind here, and the tips of my ears were hot. My fingers were wrinkled. It was warm. I made a little place to lean. It fit me well and was so comfortable. I scraped the ceiling. Some snow fell in my face. It tasted good, almost sweet. It melted in my mouth and trickled down my throat. It melted on my nose and ran down my neck. How long would the snow last? How long until it went away and the whole earth would be hard and confusing again, with too many roads everywhere and not enough ways to get there? Snow always lasted a long time, but, but it never lasted long enough. I couldn't really rest if I was going to tunnel to the Pacific to find Daddy. I started again. Didn't think. Just started into the darkness. That is what I'm doing, I said. I'm digging to find Daddy at the Pacific Theater and watch Gone with the Wind with him, with Sock, the morons, the first shirt, and all the guys from basic training and his letters. 
we'd all be together. Maybe I'd need an airplane to fly over the boot camp, to fly over England where the drooling British lived in darkness, and to get to the Pacific Theater where they were all watching Gone with the Wind. I knew it was a long way to travel, but all the world, all the world was covered in snow now. I was certain of that, and that meant that I could get there from here. I'd dig under boot camp, under the British. Then I'll bring him home, and we can all go to Carsonia Park, and this time, this time, I will, I will ride Blitz in the roller coaster, and maybe I'll even stand and not worry about the don't stand sign. I'll forget about rats and dirty feet. We'll go to the shooting gallery and shoot the bear together and win big rabbits and give them to mother. I won't lose my shirt. I won't lose my head. And I was digging in the dark, and I was thinking it was pitch black. I couldn't see anything. I could just feel the snow, the cool snow giving way, being left behind. Then I hit something. It was hard. It was smooth. It was wood. I recognized its feel. It was an edge, the edge of my sandbox. I had dug to the sandbox. I was only to the sandbox. On it, had I been able to see, would be puppies. Puppies playing with butterflies, a boy and a girl digging in the sand by a beach. Waves would be rolling, painted on the wood of my sandbox. I was only to the box. And days must have gone by since I started. I scooped around the edge of the box, opening up the tunnel to another direction. I was angry now. I was yelling. I was only to the sandbox. I stopped and leaned against the wood, and it felt warm. Summer was still in it, still in the wood. The plywood top covered the sand. The sand was summer. It was still there, still in the box, under the snow with me. It was summer, and back when I had a daddy. I could hear my breath coming in, going out. I couldn't see it. Soon I got quieter. It was warmer. I heard nothing. No breathing. No wind. Nothing at all. Not Carsonia. Just the distant voices, voices from the past, my memory. And my tunnel dropped away. It fell behind me. I was lifted from the world into a swirl of snow and a blast of wind. There were arms all around me. There were legs and chests, pops, jowls, and mother. Her hands took me, hands carried me to the house. It was hot. I was laid on the table. The light was overhead, bright. I felt hands reaching, opening my snowsuit, hands reaching into my wet wool and drawing me out, peeling my clothes away. Then I was bare and was being carried up the steps. Water was running in the tub. Mother's hands rubbed me. Nana's voice said, rub him, rub him with a terry cloth towel. Rub him, and here, make him drink this shot of liquor. And burning hot, it went down my throat and sat warm in my stomach. I wanted to, and I did throw up. Then I went into the hot, hot water, and everything was steam and water lapping in my ears, and there were tears, and later... Mother told me in bed that Daddy was lost in action in the Pacific Theater. I knew that, but I listened to her anyway. I wondered for days, days after, if I had died. Of course I had not. Dr. Kotzen said I was fine. Pop-Pop looked for his shovel for a long time. I kept thinking it was in the Pacific. And when the snow was gone, no, there it was.
I called this artificial autobiography. My father was not killed in the war. He did not serve in the military. He was a machinist who made parts for the Norden bombsite and had deferments because of that vital war work and, well, because of me. He never left Reading, Pennsylvania during the war. I call this artificial autobiography because, other than the word of probable death coming from the outer world into the family, the rest of the story is true. That huge snowfall happened at about Christmas of 1945. I did try to dig my way from our house in Reading, not to the war, but to Chester, Pennsylvania, where my cousins lived, which might as well have been in the Pacific Theater. And I did reach my sandbox, a good, well... 15 feet or so from our back steps. The tunnel was extensive, and I was saved from the collapse of it when my grandfather, who was called Pop-Up, waded belly-deep into the snow and pulled me out. I was peeled, tossed into a hot tub, rubbed down with a terry-cloth towel, and was given my first shot of hard liquor. I did vomit. But on my street in Reading... During those war years when I lived there, as William Agee said, so successfully disguised to myself as a child, word did frequently come from the wider world. Words of death, of certain and uncertain loss, was frequent. Those words never reached my ears, no. Word, when delivered officially by the man who trudged the street or got off the trolley, was whispered from woman to woman on the street in the market. Heads were shaken slowly. Tears fell into snow or onto the sunny sidewalk. The words never reached my ears, but their impact, their effect on others, somehow reached my brain. Words. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Came from the world back then. And alas, they still come. And those words are what the story speaks of. Our second piece tonight is another winter tale. It's a small family story, a story of a father's death at Christmas. It's also the story of a message sent. In this, however, the message is from within the family, and it is finally received. Well, you'll hear. The story is called The Spirit of Christmas, and it's by James Lovegrove. James Lovegrove is British. He is the author of nearly 40 novels and books for children. He writes in the tradition of John Wyndham and J.G. Ballard and frequently deals with the corrupting effects of wealth and commercialism in his work. His first novel was The Hope, published by Macmillan in 1990. And of the writing of that book, (laughs) there hangs a tale. I'll tell you later. James was shortlisted for the Arthur C. Clarke Award in 1998 for his novel Days and in 2004 for the John W. Campbell Memorial Award for his novel Untied Kingdom. His short story, Carry the Moon in My Pocket, won the 2011 Seiyun Award in Japan for Best Foreign Language Short Story. While the word Seiyun means nebula in Japanese, and I probably vastly mispronounced that. The award is more the equivalent of the Hugo. Lovegrove has written young adult fiction, most notably a series of fantasy novels, The Clouded World, under a pseudonym, J. Armory. So far, these have been translated into nine languages. He's also written a number of short novels published by Barrington Stoke, a company specializing in books for reluctant readers. Here is James Lovegrove's The Spirit of Christmas. Christmas. Best day of the year, right? No question. All those gifts. That annual mass insuffusion of stuff. Things to play with or wear, or money to buy more things to play with or wear. Christmas. 
the end point of months of wishing and hoping, every kid's dream. The tree, the cards, the decorations, the stockings, the carols, the turkey dinner, the crackers, the queen's speech, the tantalising just possibility of a snowfall. A big one-day blowout to make the other 364 days of the year seem lean and bleak by comparison. Well, not in our house. In our house, Christmas was invariably crap. Most days were crap, to be honest. But Christmas was crappier, simply by virtue of the fact that every other child on the planet was having a not-crap time. That was how it seemed to my sisters and me, at any rate. Kids everywhere were revelling in the Christmas that we saw on TV and read about in books, the one where families got together and exchanged immaculately wrapped gifts and put on silly paper hats and told jokes and laughed uproariously. Our Christmases, as we were growing up, were spent cowering, cringing, walking on eggshells, dreading. Dad drank. He drank all year round, he was seldom sober, and he was almost always angry. He was a smouldering volcano, a blazing tantrum just waiting to happen. Alcohol fumes surrounded him, like the plume of smoke purling out from Etna's summit, a sign of the perpetual likelihood of eruption. At Christmas, it got worse. Around Yuletide, Dad drank more. Maybe it was because everyone else was drinking more, all those celebrations, those office parties, so he felt the need to up his intake just to stay ahead of the herd. Or maybe it was because the festive mood in the air, season of goodwill and so forth, made him all the more resentful and bitter. It tormented his shriveled, misanthropic heart and drove him deeper into the bottle. Truth was, we never knew why he drank or why Christmas exacerbated the problem. It wasn't really important to find out either. Our abiding concern was steering clear of him, making sure not to antagonise him, give him no excuse to loose off at us, leaving him be so he'd leave us be. Dad never hit us, not once. Neither of my little sisters, nor me, nor our mum, ever got on the wrong end of his fist. You can say that for him. But the threat hung over us constantly. Several times a hand was raised, a blow hovered in the air. Only a whim, it seemed, separated any or all of us from a beating. That look in his eyes, grim, maddened, spiteful, his irises floating amid pinkened whites, his dilated pupils like black sinkholes. We did exchange gifts. We did sit by the tree, tearing at wrapping paper, showing one another what we got. We did contrive to do what normal families did. Quietly, though, so as not to disturb Dad. He might be asleep upstairs. He might be in the lounge with us, slumped in his armchair, brooding. He might not be home at all, but liable to return at any moment. If we were noisy, obviously having fun, he wouldn't be happy. There'd be shouting, yelling, bellowing, swearing, stamping. Maybe an ornament would get smashed, a table overturned. Christmas Day, if we weren't careful, could be the day he finally snapped and that fist that went up came down, with years of stillborn momentum behind it. I'd just turned 18 when he died, on a Christmas Eve. I'd like to say that Christmas Day was the best ever. Our first proper Christmas Day. For once we had reason to give thanks and be of good cheer. A shadow had been lifted. But it wasn't that simple. Dad was found lying in the street, halfway between the pub and our house. It was shortly after closing time. He'd been making his way home, pissed up to the eyeballs as usual. 
According to the publican, he'd been going heavy on the whiskey, his favourite form of self-medication. It was one of those rare, truly cold Decembers. No snow, but a clear night sky after a day of sleety rain. Puddles had turned to ice. Dad slipped on one, went down hard, cracked his head open on the curb. Bled like a stuck pig, but that wasn't what killed him. According to the coroner, it was a heart attack. The abused, strained organ in his chest convulsed, shuddered, and gave up the ghost. The shock of the fall. Had Dad spent less time damaging his body with booze, he might have survived the accident. We, his family, now his relics, were left dazed. There was no easy way to cope. All at once, the ogre was gone. It was perhaps what the four of us had secretly wanted. For sure, our lives could only be improved by not having him in it. But like this, in such a brutal, unexpected manner? We managed to have a kind of Christmas nonetheless. After the police had gone, and Mum had come back from identifying the body at the morgue, we sat down by the tree and passed the gifts around. We opened them mechanically, made the right noises. We were still subdued, however. It was as if Dad continued to loiter in the house, despite being dead. We were too accustomed to our fear of him. He'd always been there and not there at the same time. That sense of simultaneous absence and presence persisted. The very last gift under the tree was one for me. It had somehow got shoved to the back, hidden behind one arm of the support tripod. Mum fished it out, puzzled. Don't remember seeing this before, she said. Her frown deepened as she read the tag. It's for you, Dylan. From... from your father. Dad's handwriting, in biro, spiky and meandering. To Dylan. Now's the time. Join the club. Dad. The gift itself was small, oblong, quite heavy. The wrapping paper was cheap, with a repeating pattern of Santa's ho-ho-hoing under the burden of bulging sacks. Sellotape held it together like a full-body cast keeping a car crash victim in one piece. I shook it, a faint tinkling sound, as of something broken, something in tiny fragments. No. I put the gift back where it had been. Don't want it. Whatever it is, not interested. No one urged me to reconsider. Why has he even given you something? Meredith wondered. He never gives us anything. He never gave us anything, Kelly said, correcting Meredith's use of tenses. The gift sat under the tree, half out of sight, all through that strange Christmas. There was a funeral. Relatives came and stayed and helped out. At some point, just after New Year, Mum's two sisters got busy and cleared away the decorations. They gathered up all the Christmas paraphernalia and put it in the box in the attic. The house reverted to its less cluttered pre-Noel state. It seemed refreshed. Life could begin anew. A year later, a year without Dad, a good year, Christmas came round again. For once, I was actually looking forward to it. Meredith was still young enough to want and have an advent calendar. It was stuck on the fridge with a magnet. She opened a new door each morning. It no longer felt like a countdown to doom. I no longer was afraid of that final big door and the picture showing the star of Bethlehem or Joseph, Mary and the little baby Jesus or whatever. Now, the number 24 wasn't a warning that tomorrow would be another Christmas day full of dismal smiles and ominous silences, another of our anti-Christmases. Meredith was up early, bouncing around. 
She opened her stocking on my bed and enthused over the trinkets Mum had stuffed it with. We woke up Kelly and went downstairs to get cracking on the goodies under the tree. Mum soon stumbled down in her bathrobe to join in. The three of us had clubbed together and bought Mum the dress from Debenhams she'd been mooning over for weeks. It cost a fortune, but I had my holiday job slinging popcorn at the multiplex, and Kelly had her Saturday waitressing, while Meredith had saved up her pocket money. Mum cried. And then there was the final gift. It was lurking at the back, just like last year, with a thin scattering of pine needles on top. The one to me, from Dad. How did that... began Mum, mystified. I didn't. I'm sure I'd remember if I'd... None of us had put it there. None of us could recall seeing it there the night before. I suppose, I said, when Aunt Claire and Aunt Emma tied it up, they might have shoved it in the box along with the rest of the crimbo clobber. I suppose, said Mum, but surely we'd have noticed when we were getting the decorations out. There was nothing left in the box, was there? It's all of it up, the tinsels, bauble, lights, the lot. I don't fucking know, do I? I'm just guessing. Language, Dylan. Meredith giggled. Sorry, I'm annoyed, that's all. I really don't want the damn thing. Then throw it away, Mum said. Good idea. I headed for the kitchen in the big pedal bin. You're not going to open it, Kelly asked. You're not the slightest bit curious what he gave you. It'll be some old piece of tat, something cheap and pointless he picked up at a charity shop or the petrol station. That or something unpleasant. Either way, the gift made a satisfying clunk as it fell into the bin. Now let's get on with having our first decent Christmas. As the son of an alcoholic, I chose not to drink. It was hard at uni where the campus bars were subsidised and the peer pressure immense. All around me, fellow undergraduates regularly got tanked up to the point of passing out. I'd gained a reputation as a bit of a weirdo being teetotal. Some thought I was religious, others prudish. This irked me, and I sometimes lost it with people who kept probing, trying to find out why I avoided the demon drink when it was none of their ruddy business. Mostly, though, I rose above it. I knew what alcohol meant. I knew what it could bring out from inside. Dad had been one of those functioning inebriates. He'd been able to hold down his job in marketing, get through the workday more or less without the drunkenness showing. But at home, he didn't have to be professional or polite or presentable. There was no need. He became a wild bull under our roof, a thunderstorm in the shape of a man. What had been in him was surely in me too. Booze was the key that unlocked the cage, so I left the key well alone. That wasn't to say I wasn't tempted, especially when, a year on, the gift reappeared once more. It was looking somewhat worse for wear. The wrapping paper was torn in places, scuffed, smudged with dirt. Those Santas with their grins and their crimson and white outfits were looking jaded and threadbare. Yet it was there all the same, perched under the tree on Christmas morning. This time, when I swore, Mum didn't take me off. I chucked it in the bin, I said. I know I did. You all saw me. Mum and my sisters nodded. And the bin bag went out, into the wheelie, and the dustman came. More nods. So what the hell is it doing here? Nobody had an answer. Meredith, around and on the younger of my sisters, is this you? One of your practical jokes? No, Dylan, because it isn't funny, all right. It wasn't me, swear to God, why would I? You took it out of the bin when no one was looking. You kept it a whole year. You sneaked it under the tree last night. I know you did. What a stupid-ass thing to do. Dylan. 
Tears whirled in her eyes. I didn't. Honest. How can you say that? Liar! I was beyond angry. Silly little sixteen-year-old, trying to mess with my head. She deserved a good slapping. Dylan, for God's sake, she's telling the truth. Can't you see that? This was from Kelly. I turned on her. Well, it was you then. Aren't you the one who said I should open it? So that's what you're trying to get me to do. Lower your voice, young man, warned Mum, and back off. Neither of your sisters has anything to do with this. Screw you, I roared at her. She flinched, then recovered. I don't know what's going on, she said evenly. All I know is I want that horrible thing out of my house. Take it away, Dylan. Get it out of here, and while you're about it, go and cool off. Get some air. I've no idea why you're behaving like this, but I won't stand for it. I took a stick from your father, but I won't from you, because I know you're better than that. I slammed the front door behind me and stomped off down the street, the gift jammed under my armpit. With each step away from the house, my anger subsided. Kelly and Meredith weren't responsible for the gift coming back. Of course they weren't. Mum either. How absurd. There was something else going on here, something I didn't like the feel of and didn't care to examine too closely. I went to the canal, nice and deserted at this hour on Christmas morning. I held Dad's gift out over the water. Breeze caught the tag, flipping it over. I reread the cryptic inscription. Now's the time. Join the club. Not a chance, you old wanker. I dropped the package into the canal. Won't be seeing that again, I thought as the concentric ripples ebbed and faded. Next year, it was back. The paper looked exactly as though it had been soaked in canal water and then dried out. The Santas and their sacks were browned. The sellotape had come loose in places, sticking up like strips of dead skin. Whatever lay within was still just covered by the wrapping that seemed eager to emerge as if aware that it was less securely restrained than before. If it was going to break loose, be born, this was the moment. Mum screamed when she saw it. She refused to go into the lounge until it was taken away. I didn't much want to go into the lounge myself, but I did. Armed with an Asda carrier bag, I scooped the gift up and took it in the car to the town tip. The tip wasn't open, but I lobbed the gift over the wall, carrier bag and all. The council guys could deal with it when they reopened for business on Boxing Day. Driving back, I passed a convenience store. It was open, and there were signs in the window, hand-scrawled on fluorescent card, trumpeting, Xmas booze bargains. Silly money for a wine box or a multi-pack of lager. Pulled over, I went in. I eyed up the bottles and cans on the shelves, contemplating their liquid cargo. I was thoroughly spooked by the return of Dad's gift. It was impossible, inexplicable, evil, like a memory that wouldn't go away. A stench that wouldn't be dispelled. A drink surely would help. That's what booze was for, wasn't it? To make you feel better, soothe the nerves, keep the bad thoughts at bay. What's it to be, mate? asked the shopkeeper. Of all sorts of deals. Tis the season to get married. Fa-la-la-la-la. I reached out. I wasn't sure which type of booze my hand was heading for. One of them, any of them. Some whiskey, maybe. Did it matter? My mobile rang. Mum. Have you done it, love? Got rid of it? I felt as if I'd been brought to my senses by a dash of cold water. Yeah, Mum, I said, leaving the shop empty-handed. All sorted. The year after that, Kelly was away, off on a gap year jaunt teaching English in Africa. I had my own flat by this time, and the beginnings of a career, a girlfriend, Julie. We went to her folks for Christmas, nice pad in a seaside town. 
Christmas Eve dinner, her dad kept trying to ply me with wine. Julie told him I didn't drink, but he seemed to regard this as a challenge, not a piece of advice. I got pretty sharp with him towards the end, but he was too tipsy to take offence. In spite of that, I still thought it would be a Christmas to cherish. Dad's gift wouldn't follow me here, would it? A hundred miles cross-country? Of course not. It was daft to even consider the idea. Dad's gift was either in the landfill by now or had been shared out amongst the tip workers a year ago. Mum phoned shortly after eight on Christmas morning. The gift was there at home, bumped, dusty, bedraggled, but there, like some mangy stray dog that wouldn't take the hint no matter how many stones you hurled at it. I lied to Julie and her family, said there'd been a domestic emergency, which there was, sort of, I just didn't specify what. I jumped in the car and drove like a madman. Mum and Meredith were at a neighbour's, still in their nightclothes. They couldn't bear to be in the house, not with it. They couldn't stand to be anywhere near it. I had to steel myself to walk through the front door and across the hall. For all the tinsel and holly and strings of cards, never had the place seemed less jolly, less inviting. My heart was pounding as I entered the lounge. There was a faint odour in the air, a whiff of rot and decay, the smell of refuse tips of buried things. I thought this to myself. This, surely, is the kind of occasion when a man needs a few nips of Dutch courage. If Mum had kept booze in the house, I'd have grabbed some and ended a lifetime of abstinence there and then. She didn't, though. Not a drop, not even cooking sherry. At the back of the gift pile it hunkered, the spectre at the feast, the ghost of Christmas presents. Right, you bastard, I said. Enough's enough. Four fucking years, and God knows how many more it'll be if I don't put an end to this. I snatched up the gift. Again that faint, almost metallic tinkling. The wrinkled wrapping paper seemed to unfurl in my hands, peeling itself apart. The Santas, all manic and loopy-eyed, cavorting in their lines, broke ranks, moved aside. One last stubborn rectangle of sellotape held the entire package together. A tiny sideways flick of my index finger was all that was required to unseal it. Then, finally, after so long, I would know. It would stand revealed, the gift that kept on giving itself. Ten minutes later, the wrapping paper was burned, reduced to ashes in the fireplace. The same felt befell the cardboard box that the paper had sheathed. As for the gift itself, a bottle of whiskey, it had been poured down the sink. Seventy-five centilitres of single malt, not a brand I recognised, distilled in some Scottish town I'd never heard of, was gurgling its way into the sewers. The only thing I kept was the tag, a small reminder, a souvenir, a badge. Now wasn't the time. Now would never be the time. I was never joining Dad's club. I had his temper. I'd inherited it along with his thirst, but I wasn't going to let it get the better of me, not while I still had an ounce of self-respect. Just like the paper, the old bastard could burn. Whatever wretched, desert-dry hell he'd been consigned to, no way was he dragging me down there with him. The Spirit of Christmas. The pun is intentional. Of course it is. 
James Lovegrove's work tends toward the literary and usually carries something of a dystopian and or satirical edge to it, but he does have a fondness for wordplay not only in his prose, but sometimes as a plot device, as in the back-to-back double novel Gig, where palindromes form a key part of the narrative, and the novel Provender Gleed, whose cast of characters includes a pair of detectives who solve crimes through the use of anagrams. Lovegrove is also an illustrator as well as a writer, and he's executed design and poster work for Flying Pig Systems, makers of the Whole Hog range of lighting control products, and he drew the pictures for the Echo Beach line of postcards and T-shirts. He's contributed reviews and journalism to magazines such as The Literary Review, Interzone, and BBC Mind Games magazine, and cryptic crosswords to the weekend section of The Independent. He's a regular reviewer of fiction for the Financial Times and of graphic novels for comic heroes. Appropriately enough for us here in the Nook tonight, James was born on Christmas Eve of 1965. While at university, a short story of his won 15 pounds in a college competition. He said it cost him 18 pounds to get the story typed, which taught him a valuable lesson. After graduating from Oxford with a degree in English literature, James set himself the goal of getting a novel written and sold within two years. It took two months. That book, The Hope, was completed in six weeks and accepted by Macmillan two weeks later. Escardi Gap was co-written with Peter Crowther over a working span of a year and a half, during which time the two authors played a game of creative tag, each completing a section in turn and leaving the other to carry the story onward. The result has proved a cult favorite and was voted by readers of SFX, one of the top 50 science fiction fantasy novels of all time. Thanks, James. We look for more from you. And thank you again, Richie Smith. Richie has become quite a regular here in the Nook. He is 1980 vintage, and poor lad says it's been pretty much downhill ever since his birth. (laughs) Richie reveals that he has spent much recent time in a basement laboratory doing things he cannot or will not talk about. He also recently moved all the books in an Oxford library three feet to the right. He currently lives in Old Trafford with a death metal vocalist and a salamander. And you can follow him on Twitter at at Naranschiff, and that's at sign N-A-R-R-E-N-S-C-H-I-F-F, should you be interested in that sort of thing. He's putting his master's degree to good use, by the way, right now as a roadie for a heavy metal band in Slovenia. Well, that does it, children of the night. A gentle evening here in the nook, some warmth for the season, a few deaths, some sorrow and angst, and, yeah, a bit of strange. Next week will be Christmas Eve for us here in the nook, gentle listeners. Christmas Day itself, having decided to arrive on a Tuesday of all disagreeable things, my least favorite day of the week. I hope by then there will be snow on the ground, a whiff of hardwood smudging the air and a crackle of seasonal yummies to go around. Next week, 
two or more, perhaps, winter tales, light things to chill and make you shiver and yearn for something like home. So, this evening is at an end. I would have you be upstanding, dress, wrap, be off with you. And as you wend your way through the night town toward home, please, don't be tempted by the light, the noise, the sweaty excretions of the bars along the way. Remember, this, where the nook is located, is Potterville. It's not Bedford Falls. George Bailey never lived. Clarence never got his wings, not on these streets. Not at least until later in the season. Maybe next week. Hmm? So, be off to your beds, stark and sober, and face the dark and the eternal question, Have I been naughty? Have I been nice? Will I have pleasant dreams? Hmm? This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Superlight Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So, what can you do in a super light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Right. www.districtofwonders.com Thank you for listening.